worry, Debbie, I have a script as well, so it's okay. <laughs> One of my all-time favorite shows of all time is Breaking Bad. Any Breaking Bad fans in here? Okay. And I think, before you judge me, I've had enough conversations with many of you to know that you guys are fans as well. And so this is not an endorsement unless you want it to be. Go watch Breaking Bad. In this show, it's, uh, there's a lot of twists and turns that happen. You're watching this story unfold of a scraggly, middle-aged man, right, Walter White, who was once a chemistry teacher, got an illness that was terminal, ran into financial hardship. And so what's the obvious thing that you do? You become a drug dealer, right, who says, sells illicit drugs to provide for your family. And so the show goes through all kinds of dramatic twists and turns and unexpected events. And you see this man, Walter White, eventually take on this other personality named Heisenberg, right? This, this mysterious and dangerous man gaining notoriety everywhere, and no one's actually seen him yet. He's, there's just rumors spreading about this man, Heisenberg. And I think my favorite scene in this, this whole series is season five, episode seven, if you've watched it. It's when Walter White and his crew are driving up to meet a competitor in the industry, right, Declan, in the middle of the desert, and Walter White intends to set him straight, right? Declan is waiting there with his big macho crew with their big trucks locked and loaded in case something goes down, and here comes Walter's scraggly crew and their beat-up 1985 Chrysler ready to throw down, and Walter White seems like a nobody, right? At best, he's a low-caliber producer who's in over his head and so you see this scene play out and until this moment when they argue and the tension peaks right there is this there's this unexpected thing that happens as this scene plays out right Declan scoffs at at Walter and he says okay so who are you who are you with that tone and Walter responds you know, you all know who I am, dot, 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 say my name, right? You remember that scene. He owns them in that scene. And then Declan protests for a while until that moment sinks in his own mind of who this man Walter White is. And Walter White says again, say my name, right? And after what feels like an eternity, Declan finally says, Heisenberg. You're Heisenberg. Okay, why did I say this story? How is it connected to our passage today? In our passage today, right, if you remove all of the hubris, you remove all of the impropriety, the illicit drugs, the sinfulness of Heisenberg, you begin to get a taste of the tension that actually exists in the passage that Debbie read for us this morning from Mark 11. The tension between the holy son of God, the big, bad religious leaders, and what plays out. Our scene in Mark 11 today has much bigger meaning and much, uh, much higher consequence than, you know, Walter White and Heisenberg in Albuquerque, New Mexico. In our scene today, we see something quite astonishing. And, and for us, whether you've grown up in church, if you've heard of him of Jesus on the news or in the media, in popular opinion, if your opinion of Jesus so far has been this tepid, soft, weak, quiet Jesus, today 
in Mark, it will show you a man in Jesus who you may seem, who may seem to you unimpressive on the outside, but as we, as we hear, as we see, this Jesus actually carries immense weight, immense authority, far greater than any man or woman has ever carried or will ever carry. As, as we enter into this scene, of conflict. We are actually entering a series of seven conflict scenes between Mark 11 and 12 in which Jesus has conflict with the religious leaders of the temple. And in our text today, the issue that comes up in conflict has to do with one thing, and that is authority, specifically the authority of Jesus Christ. And so as we consider this scene in Mark, here's what I want us to leave here hearing today. Here's the big idea, the takeaway for us this morning. That Jesus has ultimate authority. It is good that he does. And he lovingly invites us to submit to him. Right? Jesus has ultimate authority. It's good that he does. And he invites us to lovingly submit to him. And to just understand the roadmap of our passage today, we'll divide it into three sections. First, the threat of Jesus' authority. Second, the source of Jesus' authority. And third, the refusal of Jesus' authority. And so as we start, uh, you can turn your Bibles with me if you have one. Otherwise, there's a seat. There's a Bible in the seats in front of you. You can turn to page 848, Mark 11. As you turn there, let me pray for us that God might bless our time this morning. Our God, this morning we stand as those who, again, are dependent on you for everything. Uh, we need you, O oh Lord, to open our eyes to, to see, open our ears to hear, open our hearts and our minds that we might believe. There is much in our world, there is much in our lives that would push away Jesus far from our lives. And so, O oh God, would you by your spirit draw us close to him this morning. Allow us to feel his mercy and his grace and his invitation to trust him, to know him, and to follow him. We need help for this, and so we ask for your help. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Okay, so today's passage in Mark 11 follows a passage that Ajay preached for us last week when Jesus goes into the temple and cleanses the temple in Jerusalem. But as we've seen, Jesus didn't go in with a mop bucket and some latex gloves, right? He came in with indignation. He came in and drove people out. He flipped tables. He literally removed the seats under which people were sitting. And the temple that was intended for prayer and worship, Jesus saw it and it was turned into a marketplace for, for robbers and for commerce. And he, hadn't, he, he did not have anything to do with it and so he caused a scene. But as we've considered that scene last week, here's the thing about how we might perceive that scene, right? When we're on this side of the story, right, 2,000 years later, we might perceive it a little differently because we have the whole of Scripture and we, we see Jesus as God. And so we, we can sort of make some kind of understanding of how the people might respond. But, but for us, it's very different for how they've actually experienced it in that time because who was Jesus to them? Did they, did they know who he was yet? Right? They, don't, they don't truly know yet the character, the person of Christ. They've seen him perform some miracles. They've seen him draw some crowds. But they don't quite really know who Jesus fully is. Right? It's like if you were to go into a Buddhist temple down the street or into another house of worship. 
and you just started ripping down statues and ripping down paintings and you pulled out the seats from underneath people, right? That, that wouldn't go over well for you. If someone came into Seven Mile Road here Sunday morning, imagine how you would respond if, that, if that's what happened here. And so as we see this scene, as we see this scene of Jesus cleansing the temple, there's been some serious buzz that's been created around the town and in the temple gates and within the temple itself. And so it was Tuesday, the day that Jesus went in and cleansed the temple, and now our passage says that it's the next day, and now people are talking, rumors are spreading, the religious leaders are discussing. And in our text today, all eyes are on Jesus, this man who just drove out people in the temple. Everyone's wondering, what will Jesus do next? And people were keeping away their pigeons and holding on tightly to their chairs, hoping that he wouldn't do this all over again. And so they watch. And that's where we start here today in Mark eleven twenty-seven. 27. It reads, And they came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. Okay, so now you see Jesus coming back into, into the temple the next day. The temple, this amazing structure, right, with grandeur and beauty, with an amazing view overlooking Jerusalem itself, filled with deep theological and historical significance for the people of the Jewish people. And this is going to be the stage on which this conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders take place, right? And so Jesus, he enters this temple, and who comes in? The scribes, the chief priests, the, the elders come in, and they approach him. So who are these big shots? Who are these bigwigs? They're actually what's known, they, they comprise what's known as the Sanhedrin, right? It's a group of three, three different groups of people made up of 71 men who essentially freely rule the temple, right? They, they own the temple. And they also not only rule the temple, but they also have a lot of political power and a lot of political swing. The, the Sanhedrin is sort of that in-between buffer organization between Roman rule and Jew, the Jewish nation, the Ju Jewish people, right? They're sort of the middle men. And so with the setting of this significant temple and these powerful religious leaders coming to Jesus whose temple he had just overturned, you can imagine the tension rising. Right? You can imagine the, the tension rising to a certain level. And as these religious leaders think about Jesus, what does our text say that was their primary concern? It says, what? What stood out to them most? What piqued their interest? Reading from verse 28 again, it says, And they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you the authority to do them. The glaring concern for these religious leaders has to do with the authority of Jesus, where he got it from. They're essentially asking Jesus, who are you? Who gave you the right to come into our temple, into our house, and act like you own the place? This was not a gently put question, right? It was not asked, asked calmly. Because in verse 18, we, we've read already Last week, that after Jesus cleansed the temple, what does it say? It says that these religious leaders were actually seeking to destroy him. Right? So they've already created a conclusion in their minds. They already have an end game in mind, and now they just need to reach it. They need to destroy Jesus. And so as these religious consider the authority of Christ, it's good for us to also think about how, how we view authority in our own lives and in our own world and culture. Right? How does our world and culture view authority? 
you don't have to look too far into our own global history and national history to see some really bad examples of authority, right? We've seen the rise of Hitler's Nazi Germany and all the death and destruction it's caused. We've seen, if we even look back into our own American history, the residual effects of slavery that have caused all kinds of ruin that affect our lives today and on our real walks today in life. We've seen political figures and local leaders fail us and rule without integrity. We've seen even within the church people lead with muddy hands and with deceptive hearts. We live in an age where we don't like people telling us what to do because we've had some really bad experiences. And so, whether you're in middle school or in high school or you're, you're, you're a son or a daughter who find it difficult to listen to your parents or you're working and you find it difficult to listen to your boss or you're sitting here wondering why you're listening to someone make an appeal to you from God's word, we have a bent to reject authority. We want to think for ourselves. I want to think for myself, believe in ourselves. We want to feel for ourselves and rule ourselves. Right? There is an independence, especially for us, if we were to be honest as Americans, where we really value being independent, right? So even as a Christian, we'll take Jesus. That's, that's okay. We'll take Jesus, and that's fine. So long as he doesn't tell me how to think, act, what to, what to say, how to, how to do it, how to spend my money, how to think about my, my decisions as a person. We'll hold him at a distance. But the trouble, of course, is that there is no Jesus that exists like that, that stays away from the, the, the details of our lives. The, this kind of Jesus does not exist. The one that does exist is the one that comes into the temple and overturns tables and confronts sin. There is no following Jesus that does not allow him to have authority over our lives. And so one of my prayers for us this morning is that we might, as we see Jesus, as we think of the million bad examples in the world of authority, that when we see Jesus, our perspective on authority might even be transformed and changed as we see Jesus, who is good, who is perfect, and who is for us. And so these religious leaders, they have noticed authority coming from Jesus. He's displayed authority. So what have they heard? What have they witnessed? Right? It was not just that day in the temple when he cleansed the temple that they witnessed authority. But Mark has given us a long list of accounts of Jesus' authority already. He's displayed authority over sin because he's presumed to forgive it. And he's delivered the demon-possessed. Right? He's displayed authority over the physical body because he has caused the sick to be healed, the, those who are blind to see, those who are deaf to, for their ears to be unblocked, and even for the dead to rise. He has displayed authority over other created things. He's, he's walked on water. He's calmed the raging sea, and he's even multiplied food to, to be given to thousands of people. And, and when Jesus came into the temple the day before and he cleansed it, he has claimed authority even over this sacred and holy space, and he calls it my house. So he just claimed the temple as my house. And it's not just the religious leaders who are noticing this authority, right? In, in Mark 1.27, if you look back, it says this, And the people, they were all amazed at Jesus, so that they questioned amongst themselves, saying, What is this? 
a new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. So as you're reading this passage, as you're reading this scene, part of you might even sympathize with these religious leaders, right? Because Jesus seems like he could mess a lot of things up for them. He seems like a troublemaker coming from the outside, coming in. He, how does he come into their space, into their domain without their approval or without their permission? And it seems like they are losing control of the people because they seem to be following him as well. We've just seen a couple of weeks ago a scene where Jesus comes in triumphantly into Jerusalem. And what do the people do? They lay down their cloaks. They lay down leafy branches. And they shout out, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And so they're losing control. And you think, wouldn't this be the one that they're waiting for? Wouldn't they be excited? Isn't this what they want? But they cannot see. And so at some level, we, we sympathize with their concern because they're losing control. And yet this is the one that they've been waiting for. So they cannot see clearly. But instead, they do see that they have a responsibility to keep order, to maintain proper religious and communal life for the Jewish people. And Jesus is a threat to all of this, to their very way of life. It's a personal attack. Jesus is a personal attack to these religious leaders, right? It's a personal attack against their livelihood, against their families, against their religious community, their social community, and their very identity, who they are, how they are defined by their authority. And so Jesus Jesus arrives, and he is a personal attack on these religious leaders. And so just as we consider them, would you, would you realize the inadequacy of just mere religion without Jesus? Even at the height of where these men could go, right? They're, they're at the pinnacle. They're at the point of where they could reach success in their field. And it means nothing, right? These men had all the proper credentials, all the right paperwork and the proper religion, but they question, ironically, the credentials of the very one of whom they should bow before. Be careful not to depend too much on mere religion. And I'd also say this, be careful not to think too fondly of religious leaders or even pastors. And I see the contradiction as I even say that, the irony of that. But as, as I was even reading this past week, I heard one man named J.C. Ryle put it, Put it well, you must not look up to ministers as popes or regard them as infallible. We are but flesh and blood. We may err in both doctrine and practice as well as the chief priests and elders of the Jews. Their acts and teaching must always be tested by the word of God. They must be followed so far as they follow scripture and no further. Because there is only one priest and bishop of souls who makes no mistakes that one is the Lord Jesus Christ, and him alone is no weakness, no failure, no shadow of infirmity, of infirmity. Let us learn to lean more entirely on him, and in doing so, we shall never be disappointed. And so this passage calls for us to not just look to mere religion, not to look for figureheads or religious leaders, but to look to Jesus, and in by doing, we will never be disappointed. And this is something that these religious leaders are not seeing. They had the authority. Okay, so we've considered first the threat of Jesus' authority. We'll consider, consider second the source of Jesus' authority. Reading from verse 29. 
Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me. And I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven? Or was the baptism of John from man? Answer me. Okay, how does Jesus answer their question of his authority? He answers their question with another question. And for these religious, and it seems odd at first, right? But for these religious leaders, actually, this type of banter, this type of uh, idea of answering a question with a question is actually very familiar in rabbinic debate, right? So it's not as odd as we might think, but it is effective, right? Because they can't now ask a third question, right? At some point, you need to answer. And so in asking this question, Jesus sort of puts them in a, in a quandary, right? And so Mark wants us to see that Jesus' counter-question was not a change of subject, but the answer to their question. And that if they refused to answer that question, it would also signal their unwillingness to accept this implied answer to their question. Does that make sense? And so, and so Jesus' question to their question is their answer. So two quick things to point out about how Jesus has responded to their question and to these, to these men. First, Jesus is no pushover. Right? He's not something that someone you can just push around. After Jesus cleansed the temple, right? Th- these religious leaders, it says in Mark, they were out to destroy him. Mark didn't go running home to his mom, away from danger. But think of the audacity. Uh, Jesus didn't run away, go home, and go to his mom. But think of the audacity of Christ. He cleanses cleanses the temple one day, and the next day he comes right back strolling into the temple, right? He strolls in through the temple and pretty much goes, I've heard you've been talking a big game, and here here I am, right? What's up? And so he, it's like he's picking a fight. He comes back the next day, and these very people with, with hate in their heart who want to destroy him comes back with courage and boldness and security, and he faces these very people who can actually kill him. Jesus is no pushover. But two, I've also been stunned in seeing that Jesus is also incredibly humble in the way that he responds to these religious men. It doesn't seem so at first, but, but what do I mean? If our spiritual eyes were open for a moment to see everyone as they really are, what would we see? We would see these religious men The fallen, finite, flawed, small, created men pointing at the holy, infinite, perfect, glorious creator shouting, no. Right? The created, right? The created looks face to face with the creator who created them. And and they question him. And what's more amazing, Jesus didn't walk away. But Jesus actually entertains their question. Even though it seems like they have the authority, Jesus is the one with the ultimate authority, and they are actually subject to him. But see, the creator has stooped so low to converse with arrogant and sinful and foolish men. And so see his goodness, see his mercy, his grace shown through this conversation with these men, the the grace and mercy that he extends to us. So as Jesus is asked about the source of his authority, where does Jesus direct their attention? Where does he tell them to look? To John the Baptist. There's a lot of odd 
twists and turns in this passage, right? When they ask him about his authority, he points them to John the Baptist. He asks them, was the baptism of John from heaven or was the baptism of John from man? Seems like an odd response. Okay, so who was John the Baptist? We've, we've heard him a bunch of times already in the Gospel of Mark, right? John is the one whom even these people, the ones following Jesus, actually revered as a prophet of God. He's the one who says about Jesus in Mark, after he comes, after Jesus comes, he who is mightier than I, I am unworthy to even tie the straps on his sandals. John is the one who was to prepare the way for Jesus, the Messiah. And if you look at Mark 1.9, you see Jesus getting baptized by John. And after he comes up, right, what do you see? What's the picture that you see then? The heavens open up. The Spirit, God the Spirit comes down and rests on Jesus. And God the Father affirms Jesus as the Son of God when he says, You are my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased. And so when Jesus asks this question to these religious leaders about John, he is saying this, Where you land with John is where you land with me. Right? A decision about John and his authenticity is also a decision about me and mine. And if you say that John's baptism is from heaven, what you are saying is that the one who stands before you right now is actually God in the flesh. Because that's who John the Baptist was pointing to. Okay, so if John's ministry was from man, though, right? If, if his ministry was from man, that means that Jesus has no authority. He's a fraud. But if John's ministry was from heaven, Jesus' ministry was as well, and he's God. And he has authority not over the temple, but who else? These men, right? This very group of religious leaders who are questioning him about his own authority. It's sort of like if you've watched the show. I, I watch a lot of TV, I, I guess. If you've watched the show Undercover Boss, right, you, you have these scenes of CEOs of large companies going in on the ground with their employees, dressing up in disguise, Right, acting like they're one of the employees. And then you watch that awkward moment when the employee actually realizes, oh my goodness, that person dressed up like an employee is actually my boss and he owns me. Right? And they, you, can, you can sense the, them swallowing what's like a golf ball as they realize and they look back and consider all that they've done. That's sort of the feeling that you should get here, right? This, this is, and again, a weak analogy to compare to who God really is in light of Undercover boss CEOs. But you get the, you get the feeling of you, who is before you is, is unlike who you could imagine or think. Right? It, is, it is great. It is weighty. And so Jesus, the reality of what, what is existing here is that Jesus does not stand below the Sanhedrin authority, but over and above it. Jesus has no authority to be subject to because he is the ultimate authority. His, his authority is unrestricted. It's, it's sovereign and free according to his own goodwill. And so how do these religious leaders respond to Jesus' question of his authority? I think sadly we'll see that they refuse to accept and profess Jesus' authority, this great God who stands before them. So thirdly, we'll consider the refusal of Jesus' authority. Reading from verse 31. And they discussed it with one another saying, 
If we say from heaven, he will say, why then did you not believe him? What shall we say from man? And they were afraid of the people, for they all held that Jesus, that John was really a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Okay, this passage begins with these big, bad religious leaders coming to Jesus to shame him, to destroy him for displaying authority, right, for overturning tables in the temple. But now Jesus, excuse the bad pun, now the one who overturned the tables in the temple now turns the table on them, right? The one who came in to corner Jesus now turns the tables on them, and they are cornered. If this were a boxing match, right, Jesus would be like the underdog up against the world champion who knocks the world champion out in the first round. It's not what you're going to expect, right? This is the one who they did not expect. And yet, look what happens. Jesus is not, again, this soft, this weak man with lush golden flowing hair off in a green pasture somewhere just petting sheep, right? That's, that's not the image that we get of Jesus here. Jesus, he doesn't have to shout and square up his shoulders to display his authority. He's poised, he's measured, he's steady, standing courageous before those who actually will and can destroy him. That's the picture that we see of Jesus here. Okay, and so as Jesus asks these religious leaders this question, he only gives them two options, right? Just two options as an answer. Was the baptism from heaven or was it from man, John's baptism? And so these religious leaders, they get into sort of a huddle, right? They begin to discuss amongst themselves to work out an answer. And you've got to wonder, they must not be too good at whispering because everything they're saying in private seems to be known, right, by the people. We read it in the scriptures. And you can imagine the scene as they are discussing. What, is, what does that look like, right? The scriptures give us some cues. It says, what, what's the discussion that they had? One guy said, okay, fellas, I think we should go with heaven. I think John's baptism was from heaven. I, I'm positive of that. We should go with that. And then another, another says, no, man, they'll say if that's true, why didn't we believe in God? Why didn't we believe in Jesus? Okay, then another man says, okay, then I think we should go with it was from man. I'm pretty sure that's, that's the only other answer available. We should go with it was from man. And then another retort, right? No, because if we say that it's from man, the people actually believe that John the Baptist was a real prophet. So if we say that it was just from man, they're going to come and turn on us and come after us. And so now what after all this deliberating and after all this discussion, what's their final answer, right? After all this time, what's the, what's the big answer they're going to give? Right? They turn back around to Jesus after huddling up, perhaps with a, a phony confidence on their faces. And one man says, well, Jesus, the answer to your question is, we don't know. We don't know. Their answer, right, after all that time, it actually doesn't seem to be an honest answer, right? It doesn't seem to be honest. It seems to be a calculated one. Did you notice that as they strategized to find an answer, there was no mention or desire for giving a true answer? There was no discussion to assert what was right, only what was convenient and self-preserving. Did you hear that? 
It was not for lack of evidence that they did not accept Jesus. Jesus displayed authority in all of these different ways that they've heard and seen. Only as God can do. Jesus walks perfectly without sin. There's no fault in him that they could find. And even John, the Baptist, references Malachi 3.1 and Isaiah 43 when he talks about Jesus in his role in preparing the way for him. Right? These religious leaders, these teachers, the ones that uphold the scriptures and teach in the temple, they see all of this, all of this evidence, and what do they do? They feign ignorance. Jesus, we don't know. We, we don't know. This answer from these religious leaders was merely an answer to maintain credibility with the people and their social circles, right? It was an answer to maintain their positions and to maintain their power. It was an answer to keep life comfortable and familiar. It was an answer that rejects Jesus so ultimately they can pursue their own desires, their own pursuits, Okay, though we are 2,000 years removed, again, we can perhaps, whether you're a Christian or not a Christian here, we can perhaps find our own hearts responding much like these religious leaders. It's not for lack of evidence that many do not believe. Our conscience, maybe even this moment, might be drawing us to Jesus, but we evade our conscience to pursue the world and to pursue our own way. If you accept and submit to Jesus as the Son of God who has come, died, and resurrected for your sins, your life could, could be different and never be the same in the most glorious way. That, that's the reality, right? But I like my life. I like my options. I like my choices, I don't want to be constrained by some authority over me. And so I'm going to shut my eyes, I'm going to block my ears, and I'm going to evade my conscience. I don't want to talk about this anymore. I'm done. Because I want to pursue what I want to pursue, what I think is best for me. This week I read again from C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity, and I think this, this quote was helpful for me and a reminder to me of how I consider my pursuits and my interest. Hear this. The more we get what we now call ourselves out of the way and let Christ take us over, the more truly ourselves we become. In that sense, our real selves are all waiting for us in him. It is no good trying to be myself without him. The more I resist him and try to live on my own, the more I become dominated by my own heredity and upbringing and surroundings and natural desires. What I call my wishes become merely the desires thrown up by my physical organism and pumped into me by other men's thoughts or even suggested to me by devils. I am not, in my natural state, nearly so much of a person as I like to believe because most of what I call me can be easily explained by my surroundings. But it's when I turn to Christ, when I give myself up to his personality, that I first begin to have a real personality of my own at all. Sameness is to be found among the most natural of men out there, but not among those who surrender to Christ. How monotonously alike are all the great tyrants and conquerors, but how gloriously different are the saints. To conform to Christ and to submit to him is not weak. It's not giving in. It's submission to what is true and right. 
And it's right for us to consider that. I wish I could read you more of this excerpt from Lewis, but his point is this. The autonomy, the independence that you and I are seeking is no independence at all. We are kidding ourselves if we think that we have no other authority over our lives. Ephesians 2 says that we follow the prince of the power of the air. We are carrying out the desires of our mind and of our body. But today there's good news. There's a better way. There is one to whom we can bow our knee and trust in because he has ultimate authority. And not only that, he's good. And he lovingly invites us to submit to him. And that's the, that's the reality of what Jesus brings us to this morning. The, the, the news that Jesus has ultimate authority can sound like bad news, right? It can sound like a weight on us. It can sound like it's constraining us and keeping us. Or it can be really good news. And I want to say it is really good news. That's not a weight, but that frees us from our shackles, frees us unto salvation to follow the one who has created us, created beings. And so as we close, I want to tell you why the sovereign authority of Christ Jesus is really good news for us. Just three quick things. Our suspicions of authority can be redefined by Christ. Right? He redefines and removes our suspicions of authorities over us because Jesus is not like the rulers and authorities throughout history and even in our day today. For one, Jesus' authority is ultimate. It's not limited. It's all-encompassing. Every part of the world is under his subjugation and under his control. If you put your faith in Christ, right, it's, it's not just that he has ultimate authority, but if you put your faith in Christ, this authority does not condemn us because Jesus is not all, just ultimate authority, but he's also a God in, him, in whom we can put our full trust in because he is for us and he loves us. He's not looking to destroy us. And you need to hear that this morning. I need to tell that to my heart this morning. Because he is good and is for us, it's actually really good news that our ultimate authority in Christ over all things is right. One theologian has put it this way. Abraham Kuyper puts it this way. There is not a square inch in the whole dom domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. That means that everything, all of our joys and all of our sorrows, everything we're confused about, falls under the sovereign rule of Christ, and he says, mine. It's under his authority. And because he has sovereign authority and is good, we can entrust him with our whole lives. Right? And so, too, we can entrust him with our whole lives. And we can trust his authoritative words this morning from God's word because they are true. And so, for a moment, Christian, where do you need assurance, fresh assurance, even this morning, of the authority of Christ over your life? Are you fearful because of the political turmoil and the... And the Division in our country. Would you seek Jesus this morning who is not subject to any human institution or man? Who stood face to face with courage that we find ourselves, that no one could ruin us, right? He, he stood before the ones who could destroy him. And we find ourselves under his authority. Nothing can ruin us because we stand with Christ. Are you wandering away from Jesus this morning? 
Are you in sin? Are you questioning whether you'll persevere in your own faith? Would you stop looking to yourself as the authority of your salvation? Look to Jesus and hear these words from him. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Because I and the Father are one. Jesus has you and holds you in his strong grasp this morning, sinner. Are you in a broken marriage? Or in a struggling relationship? Are you confused about where you are in life right now? Has coming home felt dark and cold and lonely and confusing for you? Have decisions in your lives seemed to have ruined you? Or opportunities closed that may have made life really difficult for you? Even though life is hard and even though it seems hopeless at times, would you trust that God is for you in this moment? That for those who put their hope and love in God, all things work together for their good, even when it's bad. Are you suffering? Are you in pain? Does your pain cause you anxiety and loneliness that no one can understand? Would you be reminded of God's word today that after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you into his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. And lastly, why is the sovereign authority of Christ good news for us this morning? Eventually, though his ultimate authority should have been what caused people to bow their knee before him, his ultimate authority is actually what led him to the cross. What should have been the moment where all creation bowed before Jesus, that same authority is what led him to his cross. They killed him for it on a cross. But hear this, dear, dear friends and brothers and sisters. It is also because of his ultimate authority that his death on that cross was effective for your salvation, for my salvation, for, for the forgiveness of my sin and your sin. It is his authority that led him to the cross because people were threatened by it. But it's also his authority that made his death on that cross and his resurrection from the grave effective for our salvation. So what has happened to the Son of God, the one who has all authority in heaven and earth to be subjected to foolish, weak, arrogant, and sinful men? What has happened? It's like one person has put it, the authority of Jesus Christ is astonishing, not as a display of grandeur on this earth, but as a power of redemption for captives, so that Jesus on the cross can say over our sin and over our death, it is finished. And that's the authority that he has. That's the authority that has been displayed. And so this morning, my appeal to you, dear brother, dear sister, who does not know this Jesus, is to accept him today. You may have said to yourself, I don't believe. I'm much better off fulfilling my own desires and pursuing what I think is right. But how soon before you feel empty again and feel unsatisfied? He is the one who has ultimate authority, but he is the one who's also for you and can fulfill you with all that you need. And I pray that that might compel you to turn from your rebellion against 
his authority and to cry out for mercy and for forgiveness from Jesus today. And so this morning, Jesus has ultimate authority. It's good news that he has it. And this morning, he lovingly invites us to submit to him. Let's pray.